This uh, sermon is titled, The Luminous Gaze of God. Um, I think that everybody has, that I have, some feeling about, about something in particular that that it's possible, this thing that's, that's possible, we have a, this, this feeling inside of us. Even if it's this thing you've never experienced before, even if the thought of experiencing it actually terrifies you. There is, I believe, some deep knowing in your soul that there is a place, a particular place, that you could be fully seen and understood. And I think one of the challenges of being a human being is that when this doesn't happen, and for most of us it, it doesn't, we can forget it or give up on it, or some combination of the two, and that we lose, we misplace an important source of hope. And we begin, when that happens, when that loss takes place, could be in an instant, could be over a long series of paper cuts, so to speak, of the soul, we begin to make dangerous compromises in our lives, in, in, in our world. And it, I think it leads us to where people can be experiencing the exact same thing, be in the exact same place, and they come away with something totally different. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? You ever been in a room where someone leaves an experience, the same experience you had, and they are totally fulfilled or feel connected or joyous, and you don't feel those things. Or maybe it's been the opposite, and, and you leave that way, and you don't understand why someone else's experience has been so different that they didn't seem to get what you got out of that moment. This, this place of, of forgetting, this place of, of compromise that we can get to, this, this lack of hope, it, it happens a lot of times when we come to the conclusion that to be seen to be understood, to be known, is actually primarily dependent upon us. When we come to the conclusion that we are the source of our, our ability to get what we need, we can find ourselves in a state of despair, a state of forgetting, a, a state of displacing or managing or diminishing our hope 
that we could be known, that we could be understood, that we could be seen for who we are and accepted. And this, this psalm, it reminds us that there is a source of hope outside of us, greater than us. And it is a hope that we need that has the potential to sustain us, to satisfy some of the longings of our souls, and to rekindle the hope that we were made to carry. It's interesting, the theme of the first Sunday of Advent is, is hope. And, 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 and hope, hope is an engagement. It is an engagement in relationship with yourself, with others, and with God. It is a refusal to simply just accept that the lack that we have right now is, is, is what's normal, is what's good, is what we should be content with. The priest and activist, William Sloan Coffin, he said this of hope. He said, hope criticizes what is, but hopelessness rationalizes it. That hope resists and hopelessness adapts. Hope is the energy that tells us there is something we were made for, something that we can't quite grasp, but that we need to reach out for, to continue to ask for. Just like my four-year-old Xavier asked me this morning to play DDT with him, which means wrestling. And, and I said the move DDT one time, and now they call it DDT time, right? So if you don't know pro wrestling, it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make sense to you. I don't even know what the move is, actually, but I just said it one time. And so he was asking me that for this morning, even though I'm getting ready for church and going out, that he has an unbridled, unmanaged, un... Uh, despairing hope for engagement in relationship with me. And the thing is, sometimes in our lives, we have, we have missed out on that engagement. We have felt so unseen for who we are that we stop even asking for DDT time. And that is a place where I hear the psalmist trying to wrestle through and to engage hope to be seen by the luminous gaze of God. In the first couple of verses, it says, Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, before Benjamin and Manasseh, Awaken your might, come and save us. And the psalmist was in a place here where his or her people were exiled from their homelands and lived in captivity 
and then we're, we're able to come back. And this, the city of Jerusalem and where the temple would have been was destroyed. It was ruined. And the people were trying to rebuild a life for themselves. And apparently it wasn't going that well. And this cry to God, first it's God, can you hear? Will you hear me? Will you hear us as a collective, a cry out to God? That in itself is hope. When's the last time you have just cried out to God for hope for not just you, but for us? To do that requires an animating and energizing hope within our hearts. If you don't even have that, pray to get that hope, that energizing uh, peace so that you can cry out for this. And the psalmist remembers these characteristics or quality, qualities of the God that they're crying out to, the shepherd of my people. So the, the memory that the psalmist has of God, either from past generations or personal experience, is that God is a caring shepherd, caring for God's people like a, like a flock, like a shepherd would a flock, and naming people like Joseph, uh, one of the, the patriarchs. And, but also to see God as powerful, sitting in this seat of power and authority between the cherubim. This was an image meant to conjure up what, what would be seen in the temple where the angels would be flanked on either side of the altar, and that this is the throne of God. God is all-powerful and all-loving. And evoking the names of other groups of people that, uh, that the psalmist belonged to. That this God is not just the God of individuals, but of whole groups and whole swaths of people that that we have our identity as children of God. And then the psalmist says, come and save us. Remembering these things about God and the character of God allows the psalmist then to have the hope that they could be saved, that God's people could be saved from the situation that they are in. And this time of Advent is a time of, of waiting. That's what Advent is, a, is about. But it's not just any kind of waiting. It's expectant waiting. You can see a blurb on the back of the bulletin about the season of Advent. Every part of the church calendar, we put uh, a short description there. Ben wrote that one about what Advent is. And primarily, this season of Advent is about expectant waiting. And it's based on the revelations of God that have been experienced collectively by the people of God in the past. Here, the psalmist is evoking the memories that, that the people of Israel had of God, and we can look back to the presence of Jesus, the Christ. And we look back at that moment, we, we look back at the Gospels that still speak and live in our midst today, we look back at that, and because of what we see about the character of God, 
In that past, we look forward to and we expectantly wait, we hope, with an energizing hope that God will bring salvation to us. In particular, though, this morning, in this passage of Scripture, salvation is tied to something that is so primal and, 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 and so core to the human experience that, that we would be looked at and seen. That three times in this passage of Scripture, it says, Restore us, O God. How will this restoration happen? Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. The luminous face of God shining brightly upon us. That we may have gotten it kind of twisted. We may have started to think in our minds as, as this hope within us has become deadened that there was something else to substitute for the salvation of just being seen and known and understood by God. We may have thought that there was some other kind of weaker substitute that we were meant to live with, that we were meant to hobble along with, other than to be seen by the luminous gaze of God. That, that maybe it was just, we just stopped asking altogether to be seen by anyone at any time in any situation, and we have been resigned or consigned, whichever one of those, to finding other ways to get a little bit of entertainment, to go to bed full, to eke out an existence through life. But that's not what you were made for. That's not what I was made for. That's not what the psalmist was made for. There is a theologian named Rudolf Otto. And in the early 1900s, he, he coined this concept called the numinous experience. And um, this idea is designated with this Latin phrase, and I'm not going to try to pretend I know all these things about Latin. My kids are learning Latin in their public school, and they're spouting off these Latin things. And uh, it's really annoying because I, I have no idea what they're saying. But um, it, this phrase is mysterium tremendum et fascinans that describes this idea of the numinous. And it's got three words and three parts to it. And I'm coming to your neighborhood quickly, okay? So the mysterium, the first word about this, uh, th this phrase numinous, which means to be lifted up and seen, is mysterium. That this numinous experience is based on being seen by something that is wholly other, something entirely different from anything we experience in ordinary life. And that when this happens, the natural response to it is silence, is a sense of awe. But this numinous experience is also has, has the connection of tremendum, which is the Latin word for terror. 
and it, awe and terror kind of go together. And the idea is that this being seen is overwhelming because we're being seen so thoroughly, so clearly by a source greater than us that it's scary to us. Have you ever been making eye contact with somebody and you then looked away real quick? All of a sudden you felt like, oh, this person's like seeing me too much. And you look away. Or have you ever noticed that, that small children, they, they have a hard time with sustained eye contact with adults. There's a sense of being overwhelmed but at the same time, if we didn't experience enough of that as children, we crave it so much just to be seen, just to be acknowledged with our eyes, to be seen and lifted up, this idea. And finally, the last word uh, in, in this Latin description of numinous is fascinans. And um, the idea here is a merciful and, and graciousness to this being seen. And when the psalmist talks about the luminous gaze of God in this passage, this idea of the numinous comes to mind. To be struck in silence and awe in being seen by this gracious but overwhelming at times, uh, holy other presence to be seen by God. If we do not have a collective memory of this experience that we can believe or have faith in, or if we have not experienced it personally, you could have either one of those. You could have belief and faith, as the psalmist did, of that collective experience, or maybe you've experienced it yourself. Then it's hard to have the necessary trust that this could happen. It's, it's hard to have hope that you could be seen by God and that that being seen by God would result in salvation. And so the psalmist having that faith says in verse, verse 4, How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. This is a lament. This is a sadness, a weeping, a sorrowfulness because the psalmist has hope. You see, we do not grieve the absence of God, the absence of being seen in the present without the hope that we could be seen in the future. So, again, we may, we may have gotten things twisted to believe that a hopeful person is not a sad or a sorrowful person, but that is not true at all. There's there's few that would say this psalmist is not an incredibly hopeful person. That this psalmist is crying out in lament and saying of God, would you turn back 
to us? Would you give us your presence instead of the bread of tears that you would mourn and that you would weep the state that you are in right now, not experiencing the gaze of God? Can you connect with that at all? Can you relate to that? Does that stir up any maybe forgotten or pushed aside hope that you had at one point to be seen by your creator, your maker? If, if, if there is no other thing that you were made for, it's that. In Christianity, we believe in God in the Trinity, the three in one, that at the heart of God is relationship, relationality. That even if there was nothing else but God, there would still be a relationship. There would still be a seeing and an understanding and a knowing, even within the personhood of God. You were made for the luminous gaze of God. And in a poetic way, the the hope that the, that the psalmist is referencing, he said, you've given us the bread of tears. And this unfinished temple, the temple that was ruined, the temple that represented the presence and the, and the place where God dwelt, there was bread. There was this bread of presence. And that bread was always there. But if we were to look at one of the verses that reference this bread of presence, put Exodus 25 on the screen. It says, put the bread of presence on this table to be before me at all times, the instructions for this temple. And in the Hebrew, that word um, presence, panam, actually translates literally to face. The gaze of God. This is what Jesus takes. And he takes this bread and he takes this wine and he says, this is about me. That I am bringing the face of God, the presence of God. The place for you to be seen to this communal table right here. And Jesus says that when you eat this, you are part of my body, the body of Christ. And when you drink this, you are drinking in the blood of this mystical body of Christ, this organism that is meant to reconnect everything that had become disconnected in our world and our relationships. The psalmist continues the lament in verse 6. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. We need you to see us, God. See this situation. We need to know that you see us in this. Because again, in verse 7, restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. 
And, and if the collectiveness wasn't enough there, it continues, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man that you have raised up for yourself. This is the people of God, metaphorically symbolized, the favored people of God, which is what you are. 18 and 19, then we will not turn away from you. Huh. Revive us and we will call on your name. The psalmist says, God, turn your face toward us. And when you do, because the psalmist expects that God will, the psalmist says, when you turn your face toward us, we won't look away from you. The psalmist says that because they believe that if they were to meet the gaze of this luminous God, that they would be saved. That they belong to God. Do you know what happens uh, to children in orphanages so often? babies. They die not from an illness, not from uh, a virus or a bacteria, but literally just from being lifted up and looked at. The numinous experience. That we were made to have that experience with God and with one another. And so here is, here's a challenge for this morning and for the life of our church. I've uh, introduced this in, in some small groups, in some spaces, and we've even done it on a Sunday morning before, but there is this, there is this uh, uh, Zulu greeting that is, that is used in, in different spaces on the continent of Africa, and it's Sawabona, is the greeting and the response is Sakona. And Sawabana says, I see you. That's what it translates to, I see you. And the response is Sakona, which means I am here. If you look, I will not and we will not turn away. So we, we come here in part to be seen by the luminous face of God, but also when that moment occurs, that we have the hope and the confidence to say, and I am here. I will be seen. I need to be saved by the face of God. I need to be seen and saved by the face of God in you. The table, the communion table. Then we will not turn away from you, revive us, and when we call on your name, restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. I do want, because this is sort of more of an abstract sermon, but as we close, I do want to give you one practical thing that goes with this idea. And that is... Uh, a type of prayer called the daily examine. There's no slide, and if you want to write it down, 
You should. If you don't, if I don't see you write it down, I'll assume you have no hope that you are despairing. The daily examine. There's five parts to the daily examine, and um, I'm not going to go over those right now, but it is a reflection of your day inviting the presence of God into your reflection of the day. And here's what's happened as I have practiced that in my life and tried to show up in my relationships and gotten tools and skills from anyone that has anything to offer me about how to do that, how to show up in my own life, how to be present so that I can be seen. I have found in that daily examine that the face of God is gazing on me in the practice of that. That all the while I thought God was real far off or in some busted up temple somewhere, some inaccessible place that I could not get to. But when I've invited God into this reflection of my day and my life, the face of God has shown up to me in many ways, shapes, and forms. And I invite you to open your heart to experiencing the face of God and the communion table that we are coming to now. Let us pray. God, would you see us? Would you save us? Would you make your face to shine upon us? Now and always. Amen.